You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Great to see everyone here this morning. Uh, we're continuing our sermon series through First and Second Peter. We're in First Peter chapter two right now, and um, we've titled our series "Living Hope" because uh, in Christ we've been given a living hope, and uh, we're called to be that living hope in the world. And so, First Peter two eleven to twelve is where we're going to be reading from today. So, if you want to turn with me there, we'll uh, jump right into it. First Peter two eleven to twelve. Again, Peter speaking to the Christians, the Christian churches, and he says, "Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds." And glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much that we could be here this morning, that we could be here gathered together as the body of Christ. Lord, that we can be gathered together in your presence and, and um, how, how great that is. That we can know you and, and be loved by you and that we have your word uh, that, that you've uh, revealed yourself in and that we get to learn from it, Lord God. And I pray that you would just open our hearts to, to receive what you have for us this morning. I pray for, for a deep sense of humility uh, in, in each one of us, Lord God, that, that we would um, you know, allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction where we need conviction, Lord God. And I pray that you know anything of me in this message that you would just just take away, Lord God, and that... Any, that, that all that you have for us this morning, we would just receive and that it would change us and mold us and help us grow into the church that you've called us and created us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in our country, we ex- we're extremely concerned about privacy, right? You're like... Like the moment um, the government mentioned something about tapping our phones to look for terrorists or, or stockpiling drones with high-definition cameras or, 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 or if we hear a rumor about laptop cameras being hackable or something like that, right? We, we, we tend to, as a country in general, we tend to get on edge about those things, right? We tend to go on the defensive um, like the, and like the towel we throw over our laptop computer uh, just in case, right? to cover up the camera, we also cover ourselves and and we keep uh, our private lives to ourselves and only those that we let in, right? As if we have something to hide. Maybe we do. I don't know. But mostly we do that because we just highly value our right to have protection of privacy, right? In fact, it's an official government-mandated law, Protection of Privacy Act, right? Even though they constantly try to bend it. Um, But we like our privacy, right? We don't like being watched Right? We don't like people looking at us and watching us and seeing us in our private lives. But even despite all that, despite all our attempts to be private or, or sheltered and, and, and our attempts to keep our lives to ourselves, let me ask you all this. Do you ever still get the feeling like you're being watched? Like, not, not in a creepy way, like, like, like some creepers hiding in a tree outside your window. Like, if you get that feeling, lock your door and call the cops, right? <laughs> But I mean, like at work, 
or, or with your family or friends or, or at school or, or even in your neighborhood, do you feel like you're being watched? Well, it wouldn't, be, wouldn't surprise me if you do feel that way, because to put it bluntly, you are. You are being watched. Or rather, people are paying attention. If you call yourself a Christian, then I can guarantee that people you know are watching you. They're looking at you. They're watching you from a distance, and sometimes they're watching you closely. What I mean is you are the primary standard and picture for all the unbelievers that you know of what Christianity is, what it looks like, whether or not it's legit and life-changing. And don't get me wrong, though, I'm not saying that people are always consciously and intentionally looking at us every second and judging us and, and taking notes about us. That's not happening. But what I'm saying is that if you, if you publicly call yourself Christian, again, then you're the representation of Jesus to your community, either accurately or not. But that's what they know, right? When your non-Christian friends and family hear the word Christian, they think of you. They think of you. Therefore, it's the difference that they see in you that will play a big part in determining their views on Christianity, their views of God, and whether or not they want to check it out. No pressure or anything. But don't worry if it makes you feel any better. It's not just you they'll think of. Excuse me. When non-Christians hear the word Christian, I'm sure a lot of celebrity pastors come to their minds for good or ill. I'm sure the word evangelical and conservative comes to mind, also for good or ill. And I'm sure whatever controversial news story Christians find themselves in or or whatever issue or lifestyle or movie some outspoken Christians are against will also come to their mind as well, for good or ill. But here's the question. If all was as it should be, What would unbelievers think of or see when they look at us or hear the word Christian? If all was as it should be, what would they see? It's not a trick question. The answer is Jesus. They would see Jesus. If we were were or are doing our jobs right, that's what they would think of. That's what they would see when they see us. They would see in us a reflection of Jesus Christ. And that, generally speaking, is our purpose as Christians on this earth, right? To show the world who Jesus is, to advance his kingdom. And one of the ways we prove who he is is through our actions, or as as Peter calls them in the passage this morning, our conduct and our good deeds. And Peter's not making this up. He learned this lesson straight from Jesus himself. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Wow. Just, just think about that for a second. Does our lifestyle cause others to surrender to Christ and give glory to God? Do our actions cause the world to see the reality and beauty of the gospel? They can and they should. And that's why Peter's reminding the Christians of his day and now us today that this is who we are. This is who we're called to be. 
not only inwardly and, and, and among other Christians, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, but also outwardly among our culture and our society and our communities in the world. First Peter 2.12, again, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And here Gentiles means unbelievers, just all unbelievers here. Keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable. Let them see your good deeds so they glorify God. Our countercultural actions as Christians are supposed to prove our faith and point to salvation in Christ. That's what they're supposed to do. And this is where the rant part of my sermon starts. So buckle your seatbelts. Dorothy L. Sayers, she writes, It's startling to discover how many people heartily despise Christianity without having the faintest notion of what it is. I, I definitely agree with that. There's a lot of people that are like, oh, I hate Christianity. It's like, you don't even know what it is, right? But I would add that sadly, and I think part of the problem for people not knowing what, what Christianity is and, and for their despising of it is because Christians, especially in the West, have failed horribly and are failing horribly at showing the world who Jesus is and what it means to be part of his kingdom. In other words, just generally speaking here, right? Our good deeds aren't shining very brightly. Mostly instead what the world hears and sees from Christians is everything we seem to be against. Unfortunately, we sound like a bunch of bigoted, whiny, old-fashioned hypocrites with nothing better to do than hate a bunch of people groups. Of course, that's not actually who we are. Right? We don't gather together on a Sunday morning and, and hate a bunch of different people groups. right? But that's what we look like to the world. We look like we're against the world rather than for it. For God so loved the world, not for God so hated the world. We should be for the world. No wonder people are not only refusing to jump aboard the Jesus train these days, but they're also starting to even despise Christianity. Or rather, they despise the negative perception of Christianity that they're seeing. In their book, Good Face, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons write, Sensationalists are easily dismissed. And for good reason, there is a lot of unwarranted fear-mongering among Christians. Right? Christians are, oh, this guy is falling, everybody hates us. Yeah, okay. Sensationalists. Yet, in the midst of the hype, we think a very real story is not being told. This is not just a set of woe-is-me, victim-mentality perceptions that Christians have cooked up for no good reason. The society we live in has not only moved away from a Christian worldview it has become actively antagonistic toward those who seek to advance faith. After writing this quote in their book, they go on to present their actual findings and their research on this statement. And I highly recommend their book if you want more info. It's called Good Faith. But in my opinion, and, and they would agree with me here as well, I think, 
is that a lot of the blame for our culture becoming increasingly against Christianity isn't because they dislike the gospel message. We always use that as an excuse. Well, they just dislike the gospel message. It's offensive, so they, they don't like us. And it certainly can cause people to hate and persecute us, as, as Jesus says many times, and it's what we'll be talking about in First Peter in the next couple, couple weeks. So yes, as Jesus said, the world will hate us because of him. Absolutely. But I have to be honest, and, and, I, and I honestly weep at, 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 at the notion here that the Western world mostly dislikes Christianity these days, not because of Jesus or the gospel message, but because they haven't really even seen or heard it. Sadly, it seems like our society increasingly doesn't like Christianity simply because we've just been plain offensive, condemning, and self-righteous. I'm not pointing the finger at any of you, right? I'm speaking generally here. But it should go without saying that what we truly need to do, first of all, as Christians, as the body of Christ, is to repent of this behavior. Even so, some Christians may disagree with me again because they unwarrantedly feel that sense of pride for being disliked, thinking it proves that they're doing God's work or something. But really, though, being hated for being unloving and being judgmental and condemning and rude and self-righteous gives us no credit with God. No credit with God. First Peter 2.20. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? The answer is, is none. Right? Hypothetical question. None. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When you do good. So again, and you can disagree with me here, but I think that tragically, rather than letting our light shine before men and causing them to glorify God, I'd argue that we've done a better job collectively of hiding our faith within our homes and our churches, keeping to ourselves, you know, towel over our cameras, right, in our safe private homes. Well, in the same vein, we're ironically boldly allowing our fear and displeasure with the world be seen before all men, causing them to despise us and subsequently by association, our Father in heaven. Seriously, ask a non-Christian these days, especially, especially a, a younger non-Christian. Ask them what we're all about. And this is what you'll hear. Well, I think, you know, I think Christians, they hate gays and they hate science. And I think, I think they demean women. And they don't, I'm pretty sure they don't like transgender people in their bathrooms. And I think they think they're better than everyone. They don't let, they don't let anyone in. And... They don't like alcohol or swearing, I think. That's what you'll hear. It's not a joke. Or just as worse, they might say, oh, the Christian people I know, they're, they're, they're no different than me. I can't, tell, I can't tell a difference. Just as worse. Both statements are truly sad. Because neither of those descriptions are how we as Christians, would define our faith. But yet that's the type of Christianity we're primarily promoting these days in public. Again, not pointing any fingers, generally speaking. But here's the actual definition, right, of who we're supposed to be in public. 
We're called in Christ to be different, to be both countercultural to the world, from the world, while simultaneously being loving to that same world we're culturally and morally at odds with. Yes, we're called to be countercultural to the world, but we're called to be loving to that same world. Love your neighbor, Jesus said. Let them see your good deeds, Jesus said. Here's what he never said. Point out to your Gentile neighbor all the stuff that they're doing which you don't approve of because you're on a morally higher ground than them. Jesus never said that. Why are we doing it? We're never called to be at war or in defiance towards unbelievers. But rather, we're called to fight for their souls. That is the battle. It's for our souls, not against flesh and blood. It's against sin. It's against the principalities and powers of darkness. That's the battle we're fighting, right? And, and in being countercultural, we're called to fight this battle, right? Through being countercultural, by showing this broken and sinful world what God desires it to be, to show the world a better way. That's how we fight the battle. We don't show them a better way by by hiding ourselves away from the world or judging and pointing the finger, telling people to stop sinning. That doesn't work. Instead, it's through loving them. It's through living holy lives in front of them that we show the world a better way. So what does it look like to, to do that? What does it look like to love your neighbor? Well, Jesus answered that particular question perfectly in the story of the Good Samaritan, in which one man, who's a Samaritan, a people group hated and disgusting to most Jews back then. But yet only he has the kindness in his heart to help a dying and broken Jewish man who's lying on the side of the road while other Jewish and holy men just walk right past him. On that topic, Kinnaman and Lyons again write, the man who brings orderly, right, abundant generous, beautiful, and flourishing goodness to a broken man is the person we would least expect. To a Christian audience of today, Jesus might have said that the Good Samaritan is a bisexual, atheist, burlesque dancer with one of those Darwin amphibians eating a Jesus Fisher bumper stickers. And the broken man is us. It's really not a very nice story. Before we can run around doing good, we must acknowledge our need to be healed and restored. That kind of humility is at the heart of good faith or good deeds. Loving well, believing rightly, and living out our love and belief start here. This is a powerful statement, right? And it's one that that I wholeheartedly agree with no matter how hard it is to swallow. And I think with this wake-up call... I believe that we have the obligation and the opportunity starting today to change our culture's perception of who we are and who our God is. But it has to start with God changing us to be more like that good Samaritan and less like a Pharisee. It has to start with humble recognition and repentance for our hardened hearts and brokenness. We need to open our eyes 
to see that as the Christian church, in regards to our spiritual impact and positive influence on our society, we're lying on the side of the road and we're dying. And we need healing. We need, we need to be restored into who we've been called to be. We need to be restored back into this glorious purpose that we've been saved into. And not solely for our sake, but for God's glory and for the sake of those who don't yet know him through salvation in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we need our faith to be on full display. We need to show the world the love of Jesus. We need to shine the light and good news of the gospel for all to see. And then if the world slanders us and hates us for that, then so be it. Besides, it's not our job to make the world love us or hate us. It's not even remotely about being liked or disliked. That's not our concern. It's our job and our joy either way to live out and display the gospel through our honorable conduct and visible good deeds. Even and especially to those who slander us and try to call us evil, right? So that they too can come to know God and and we need to prove them wrong so that they too can come to know God. Rant's over. So then what does that look like? What does it mean to have honorable conduct and to perform good deeds and point others to God? Number one. There's five points here. Number one. It means being visible. Again, and as, as I've said, your faith is not meant to be a private affair. Yes, we're, we're to, to pray in private and, and fast in private and not show off and everything, but our faith is not meant to be a private affair. So don't hide it under a bushel, as Jesus says, right? Let your light shine. Let them see you living rightly and living in worship to God. I think we often try to use humility, though, as an excuse to hide our good deeds, right? And, and, and it's true, again, we're not supposed to pridefully boast in all the awesome things that we're doing, right? Not, neither, neither should we draw attention or bring glory to ourselves because of our good works. Hey, look at me, I'm doing a good thing. We're not supposed to do that, right? But we should, however, be publicly boasting in Christ, and we should be doing good works that bring him glory. Therefore, we need to be, to be and act like Christ, not only in church, but everywhere and anywhere we find ourselves to live lives of faith at all times in public so that people see that we're legit and that God is love. And that brings us into the second point. It means everyday conduct. Everyday conduct. I think we often imagine doing good deeds as being this this big life-changing thing that we do, right? And they can be amazing things, or good deeds, of course. They can be amazing things, and God can definitely use us to do these, these big and amazing things, like, like um, you know, feeding the poor, or saving sex slaves, and stuff like that. It's awesome stuff. But Peter's intent here is to emphasize as well, to have everyday integrity and honor in even the little things. To translate our love and faith into our everyday living. Right? In the small moments and the little decisions, as well as the big ones. So in, in, in our marriages, and in, in our friendships, in our workplaces, even in submission to government and leadership. And these are topics that we're going to expand on in the coming weeks. So I'm not going to 
go into them in too much detail. But again, Peter's emphasizing here that every, every action we take, every, every relationship, every decision, every interaction should be handled with integrity and should both honor and point others to God. Number three, it means being genuine. This is an important one. It means being genuine. Living counterculturally is an impossibly tall task. Right? And guess what? You already know, but we're not perfect. We're not going to be perfect. We're still sinners. We still make mistakes. Sometimes we lose our patience. Right? Sometimes we're selfish. All that kind of stuff, right? Sometimes we hurt people. But when we do, all is not lost. In fact, a big part of being Christian in the world is being genuinely honest, being genuinely broken and open and repentant when we mess up. When the world sees that we're not all holier than thou, but humble sinners in just as much need of a Savior as they are, that's a powerful statement. And that goes a long way. It's also much better than pretending we're perfectly awesome or or lying about how how righteous we are, which is certainly tempting to do. When there's a lot of pressure, I've got to be like Christ, I've got to be like Christ, I'm just going to pretend that I'm super awesome. No, don't pretend. People just see through that fake stuff and hypocrisy anyway, and it just turns them off. So don't be afraid to be publicly genuine, both in your faith and in the struggles that you're working through. Be honest and open. Number four, it means being uncompromising. So yeah, we're sympathetic to the world, of course, right? But we're not judgmental. But at the same time, we're uncompromising in our faith. Right? We can be friends with sinners, but that doesn't mean that we need to sin ourselves. Jesus was friends with sinners. Never sinned. We need to be uncompromising in our faith. In the original Greek, according to the commentaries I read, um, unfortunately, I don't know Greek. One day I'll learn it, hopefully. Um, verses 11 and 12 are actually one sentence. Just one sentence, verses 11 and 12. And so therefore, we have to read verse 11 within the context of verse 12. So let's read that quickly again, verse 11, which says, Beloved, which means all those who are loved by God. Christ, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. What does that have to do with living in the world? Well, as we interact with a world in which we don't belong, we refuse to become like them. We refuse to revert back to our old sinful nature. Right? And just being led solely by our feelings and desires. Right? The world is all about like whatever feels right to you, just go for it. Right? And we refuse to do that. Instead, we stand firmly on truth. We stand firmly on the truth. And yeah, just as I said, we're not perfect. Right? But in as much as we're able, through the strength and power of the Holy Spirit within us, we must stand firm in our faith if we're going to be successful in our calling. Besides, again, we're exiles and sojourners here, right? This isn't our home. This isn't our home. So why bother investing and surrendering our soul to things that we can't take with us when we're gone or things that won't benefit us when we're gone, right? Um, It's kind of like how uh, my family and I, we were in Disney World last month 
and we'd see people buying like weird Disney hats or like weird Disney T-shirts that were really ugly, or like or like but they're really fun looking, right? Or other clothing apparel of the like. And, 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 and we're like, why are they buying this stuff? And this process has come to be known in our family circle as the carry. And why do we call it the carry? Um, you know what carry I'm talking about, Sam. Um, Mandy's sister. Um, I didn't ask her for permission, so don't tell her if you know her. Okay. <laughs> we call it the carry because supposedly, this is also Audrey's cousin, was related. Um, when they were teenagers, they all went to Disneyland together. And I guess Carrie got caught up in the magic and fun of being at Disney. And, and you know, and she's just really feeling it. And she decided to spend a big portion of her spending money on a Peter Pan hat. But then, of course, when she left and came home to Canada, I guess she realized, you know, why do I have this Peter Pan hat? What a, what a waste of money. I can't use this here. I'm never going to wear this. Maybe, maybe for Halloween. I don't know. I'm never going to wear this, right? Thus, when people buy items at Disney World or Disneyland that are a waste of money, items that they'll, they'll never wear again, items people just buy because they're swept up in their emotional feelings of being in Disney World or whatever, we call that the carry. And we often use that as a slogan or a reminder for ourselves not to buy stuff like that. Like if we're like, oh, this is cool. And then we kind of look at ourselves and be like, is this a carry? Like, yeah, it's a carry. Don't buy that. Right? (laughs) Same goes for us as Christians. This world is not our home. When we get to our heavenly home, right, we're going to think of all that earthly stuff, those the, the simple things and all, all the desires that, that we spent our, our, our time and our money on, and we're going to think to ourselves, what a waste. That's, that stuff, maybe like it felt good in that moment, or I felt like I needed it, I felt like I wanted it in the moment, but it, but it did nothing for me. In other words, those simple desires and things of the world are like Carrie's Peter Pan hat. So as Peter the Apostle says, Don't invest in those things. Don't get caught up in the fleeting desires of this world, which only do us harm and wage war with our souls. Instead, invest in what's eternally lasting, he says. What's eternally lasting in this world? Invest in the people of the world. Show them Jesus. Let's take them with us. In that same vein, I think many, many Christians wrongly think that in order to attract unbelievers, we have to become like them. You know, so then we make compromises with the gospel message and in our methods. And I don't mean like music styles or clothes or things like that. I mean like morally and theologically and spiritually. We make compromises. But again, we've been called in Christ to be set apart, right? A holy nation set apart from the world that, so that we can show them a better way. In other words, we're called to impact the world, not the other way around. Because it's being set apart and different that will attract those who are truly searching for God. And besides, if we don't look different than the unbelievers, then why would they even notice us or even care what we're doing, right? Why would they even feel like they need to change or sign up to this Jesus thing if we're no different than them? So as we live in the world, we're also not of it. We must refuse to compromise our faith and our beliefs in the truth of the world, no matter how tempting it might be. And five, last point here, to have honorable conduct and do good deeds, it means being a force for good. It means being a force for good. 
If we look throughout the Bible where it talks about what it means to be good, in most cases it concerns doing things for the benefit of others. To be, if I, if I may again, a living hope for others. We've been given a living hope to be a living hope. To do good deeds then means serving with compassion and being generous, right? Using our gifts that we've been given to, to build others up. Standing up for justice and for the poor. And when I talk about justice, I'm not talking about just wearing t-shirts and, and posting Instagram posts, right? Which are fine for creating awareness, sure. But also actually doing good, doing justice. Standing up for justice. Really being a force for good means loving our neighbors like ourselves, right? And yes, even and especially when we disagree with them. After all, that's how Jesus loves us. And this also means we need to start asking the right questions. Intentionally asking the right questions. Like, how can I actually love my neighbor? How can I better understand my coworkers' differing views and keep an open conversation? Right? Or what issues is my community dealing with that I can help out with and, and make an impact with for God? Right? We've got to ask those questions intentionally. Because as Christians, we have been truly empowered and called to make such an impact in our communities for God that we'd be missed if we left. That's the kind of impact we're called to make. A force for good. That's who we're called to be. In conclusion, then, I just want to say that obviously this is a much bigger conversation and, and much more loaded topic than, than I have time to cover and just one message this morning. So we're going to leave it there. But bottom line, what this all comes down to is that we each have to recognize and, and rejoice in the truth that you are not your own. As the Apostle Paul says in Acts 20, 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Right? We've been bought with a price. Our lives are not our own. We're here on this earth, then filled with the Holy Spirit, to testify and prove to the world the wonder and beauty and joy and grace and hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of God the Father. Right? So let's not hide from the world who we are. Let's become visibly known in this world for our good deeds and not for what we're against. Let's strive to stand firm in our faith and shine the light of Christ wherever we find ourselves so that the world may know and glorify our God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for for the reminder in your word this morning, Lord God. And I pray that it'll be more than just a reminder for us, God, but that it'll, it'll, it'll change us, that you would bring, bring conviction to, to the areas in our lives where we've been condemning and judgmental in the world, Lord God, and that we would be, be able to just repent of those things and, and, and turn away from that kind of attitude, Lord God. And instead, I pray that you would teach us to love one another, to love our neighbors, to love our coworkers, to love any unbelievers that come across us, Lord God, in the same way that you loved us. Lord, remind us, Lord God, where we came from, that we were once lost in this world. 
Lord God, but you came and you rescued us and you paid the price for us at the cross, Lord God. You sacrificed everything. You loved us unconditionally, even though we were against you, even though we deserve judgment. You saved us from it, Lord. And we thank you so much for that, Lord God. And I pray that you would teach us to live the same way in this world. Lord, give us the strength and boldness to live lives of faith, to live public lives of faith. Openly, honestly, genuinely, Lord God, I pray that that we would shine your light to the world. And not for our sake, not for our glory, Lord God, but for your glory so that people would come to know you and know the freedom that's found in you, that they would come to know the hope that's found in believing in Jesus, your son. Lord, use us. Use us to advance your kingdom, Lord. We surrender before you this morning and give you all the glory.